Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. going to be in Luke chapter 23, starting with verse 32. And the last time the message was titled, The Polarizing Effect. And we talk about, especially Election Day, right? In in the secular world, that polarizes people. So we spoke about that. And, And that's just things that are kind of relegated to this world and this life. What's more important is eternity. You know, Jesus and a lot of his sayings um, polarized people. Maybe somebody here today will be polarized by some of his teachings, but it's certainly in a good way because you, you decide, do I believe what he's saying or not? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right? You have to investigate that. This is eternity we're talking about. It's not like a short-term vacation or something. Right? So uh, important stuff, a lot of good things in there. And today, the message is titled, The Greatest Paradox. Right? We see paradoxes in the world. As a matter of fact, uh, Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities, in the beginning, he says it was the best of times. It was the worst of times, right? It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. Some of you are mouthing it. You remember that. Uh, but Jesus kind of gave us this really greatest paradox because whether Charles Dickens, what happens today, we see so many things uh, enigmas, puzzles, things that happen in the real world. But again, Jesus brings us to the most important thing. Where are we going to spend eternity? So let's look at some paradoxes there. His death brought eternal life. The injustice that Jesus suffered brought countless pardons for humanity. The bearing of sins brought grace and mercy. And here's the one where I'm going to end with is that the gospel, the ins and outs, the nuts and bolts, well, how exactly does this save us is very complex from a theological standpoint. However, it's extremely simple. A person with a base or no education could be, the gospel could be shared about the way of salvation and within a few seconds, they could believe, they can trust, they could repent, and they can be saved. So that, those are paradoxes, right? So we're going to look at this in four parts, jumping in in verse 32. So again, we we're, this is a contiguous study. We Wherever we left off, we start off the next Sunday. It says, There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. There's some context there that I'll get into. And they divided his garments, Christ's garments, and cast lots, and the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, This is the king of the Jews. So one is polarization to the end. So a little kind of, you know, continuation from the last time is that we see the polarization uh, of the onlookers, of those who are watching this go down. The soldiers had an opinion, the crowd had an opinion, the religious leaders had an opinion, and then one of the soldiers believes, and his company uh, sees the things that are going on, and they make some observations based on what they see. Verse 32 and 34, both criminals started off mocking Jesus, and later on, one of them turns to Jesus and trusts in him. And again, people listening today, right? Um, you might have heard of the vanilla Jesus, the uh, he doesn't really do anything, he's just nice to everyone, gives out you know puppies and lollipops. He's not really the Jesus of the Bible. 
when you really understand who the real Jesus is and what he said and the claims he made, you might say to yourself, I'm either, I'm either going to move closer to this or I'm going to harden my position because polarization to the end. In verse 34, he says, Father, forgive them for they know that know not what they do. Now, when you take all the Gospels together, and whenever I study one of the Gospels, um, I always take the other three because, you know, each Gospel writer hits it from a different angle based on who his audience is. So taking this all together, um, most likely, he was asking the Father to forgive all of those who mocked him, right? Pretty, pretty incredible thing there. In the same verse, it says, they divided his garments and cast lots. This was written in Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, some 1,000 years before this actually took place. Now, we start to get into the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, they're all about the crucifixion. Again, Psalm, and some of these are Psalms of David. He's writing things that really don't apply to what he's saying in his time period. Right? The context is off. However, we find out many years later that Jesus fulfills these. Same thing with Isaiah 53, written some 700 years before Jesus comes. Now, again, we might throw these numbers around and people say, oh, look at those numbers. I remember those numbers. The United States is not even 300 years old. And we act like we've been here forever. So now, uh, sometimes triple those numbers, double those numbers, obscure prophecies that Jesus ends up fulfilling uh, with the crucifixion. Isaiah 53.12. Actually, go back to Mark 15.28. It says he was numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah 53.12 says the same thing. Isaiah 53 also adds that he bore the sins of many. That's powerful. Sometimes I think, you know, and I'm not a fan of saying to people, memorize the Bible. I would prefer that you read parts of the Bible and you understand it and you apply it to your lives. To me, I think that's much more powerful because Satan knows the Bible. He's got it all memorized. But he's, uh, he's not with the Lord. He's not on board. So Isaiah 53, it says he bore the sins of many. Think about this for a moment. When that was written by Isaiah, the people understood only God could forgive sins. Only God could set up the mechanism by which sins were forgiven. So how could Isaiah 53 say that until God the Son comes, takes the form of a a man, fully God, fully man, and He actually is crucified and sheds His blood for the remission of our sins. So, listen, I have a lot of friends who are Jewish and they just have the Old Covenant. And, you know, I've gone through their libraries and opened it up. Isaiah 53, it's the same Isaiah 53 that we read. And I would say, what does this mean to you? Uh, I'm not really sure. I'm like, well, you need to find out because it's crucial. It's crucial. So we go into this. Um, verse 35, they say to him, he saved others. Uh, let him save himself. Do you realize in this statement that his enemies gave him an accidental compliment? He saved others. The root word uh, also uh, implies a salvation sort of issue there. Wow, Jesus, see, he rose people, people got raised from the dead, uh, lame people were able to walk, and, uh, well, Jesus, we, you know, we know that you did this, so do it for yourself. Let's see what you got. Maybe some people were watching to see s- some miracle take place. Not really sure. Remember, it's a mixed crowd. No crowd is a monolith. So they affirmed his miracles as many historians that didn't believe in the first century also affirm not only the existence of Jesus, but the miracles that he did, right? So I'll use the Bible, but I'll also use extra-biblical sources that reinforce what the Scripture says. The irony in all this, and another paradox, is that if Jesus saved himself physically and spiritually, he couldn't save us eternally. So he, he couldn't. Because of his love for us, he couldn't save himself. He had to go through with the process, right? It was the only way to save us. And we're going to get into that. Two out of four is, he loves you this much. I'm going to explain that. Right? You see grandparents, parents with little kids, they love their kids so much, and they spread their arms out. Well, Jesus loved us this much. 
I can almost see, and, and I saw it reflected in some movies, I call them Jesus movies. When I got saved initially, um, I watched a lot of these movies. You know, I read the Bible, I watched movies. I'm like, I want to know as much as I can know. And you can almost picture the soldiers using, uh, nailing Jesus' wrist to the cross piece, which is called the patabolum. And you could imagine all the criminals knowing how much this was going to hurt, fighting those soldiers, tensing up as much as they could, and then wrenching the, the criminals' arms, stretching them out, and cruci- it's a horrible form of capital punishment. It really was terrible. And that's the way the Romans kept, uh, I guess they kept their order that way, instead of being genuine. But you could imagine Jesus, when it was time to nail Him to the cross, just going like this. One. Going like this. Two. And the soldier's like, who is this person? Nobody ever does that for us. So I like the little details in the Scripture. I like to look at the little things that I, I feel have so much power in them. But uh, basically, he was going to stay on this cross, which he could have come down at any time because of his love for you. You know, On any given Sunday, I meet people who come in and they say, I'm searching, or... You know, I, I can't say I'm really close to God. And they come here, and it's no coincidence. They just come. They show up. They don't know what to expect. But I'm going to tell you something, that Jesus, if you're that person, He did that for you. right? And you'll learn that over time about His love for us. Right? That's why I've devoted my life to this. Right? Uh, another scripture in John 10, I'll just paraphrase it. Uh, Jesus says in John chapter 10, in the Gospel of John, He said to His followers, He said, I have the power to lay down my life. And I also have the power to take it up again. The resurrection. He said, no one takes it from me. Right? I think He was going to show those soldiers, uh, you know, same thing with Pilate. Don't you realize I have the power to release you? Jesus goes, you'd have no power unless it was from above. Jesus showed the Roman jurisprudence system things that they had never seen before. Right? So, Jesus was in total control the entire time. And let me just say this as well, and um, Kristen shared some of this in her lyrics and, and her discussions between the, the songs, is, you know, God is in control. God loves us. As the Lord was in control back then. He's also in control now. And I have to tell you, when I became a Christian and I got serious about my faith, I did a lot less worrying. You know, <laughs> I just, honestly, I, I lay down, put my head on the pillow, my wife and I pray, and I'm, I'm done. As long as the cat's not making noise or there's not some commotion, I'm out. <laughs> it doesn't matter what's going on, but that's not how I used to live before I was a Christian. You know, I had to read that the Lord is in control, but I also have, I had to experience it. I had to live it. And if you're searching, you know, you're looking through our American culture, the world, what do I believe? What do I follow? Seriously investigate the claims of Christ. Because when you live it, it brings peace. So the Lord is in control. He was in control back then on the and some of the onlookers would have been like, how could he be in control? Look at him. He's dying a, a terrible death. So I'm going to some of these uh, ideas and just to show you how much the Lord loves you. So I did a little physiological, so listen, a little anatomy and physiology. I did a little study. I, I studied at Rutgers. I love biology and chemistry and A, a and P and it's, it's fun. It's amazing stuff. But just to... Again, let me just say this. It was repeated. It was a horrible form. It was torture, what they did to those people. But what set Jesus apart from the other criminals, right? He wasn't a criminal, but from the people who crucified with, they couldn't get down. But he could have. So this would have been sort of a primitive uh, version of one of the spikes that they used. And when they held the victim's arms out wide, they would take the spike and put it right where these, uh, the, carpal bundle, the carpal bones are. And the carpal bones are held together by ligaments, right? They all kind of interlock because of the ligaments that hold them together. So they would have taken the spike and put it 
Not here, because it would have slid off. Not in the flesh, because technically somebody could have come off the cross. So the Romans used the human body to their advantage. So they would take that spike with a primitive sort of sledgehammer and drive it right through those carpal bones. So they would have, you know, you got your uh, radial ulnar and the median nerve is in the center. It would have crushed the carpal tunnel and either severed or severely damaged the median nerve, which would have sent lightning bolts, feelings, his hands and, and down his arms. So that would be the first thing they would do as they nailed the victim to the patabulum. Then what they would do is they would take this additional spikes and find very similar, you know, uh, physiology of the human body right below the tibia and before the base bones of the foot. You have tarsal bones. So the carpals are up here. The tarsals are over here. There are small bones at the top of the foot, at the base of the tibia, which also have ligaments and they would take that spike and drive it right into there and nail that those feet to what was called the stipes which was the vertical piece if that wasn't bad enough the pain in the feet and up the legs would have been excruciating intense they would have suspended the victim by the arms and then lifted him or her i don't never heard of women being crucified but i guess that's a possibility and they would lift them up and put the uh, cross piece and the vertical piece, they would affix it, and the person would hang. So the respiratory muscles, immediately if they dropped them into that slot, there would be an exhalation effect. So in order to get a breath, victims would push on their legs to, to take the suspended position and move it up so they could get a breath. Now some people suffocated, uh, others just gave up because they knew they weren't going to get off of it anyway and they just would have hung there, eventually passed out and had oxygen deprivation. So that would have been, um, you know, when you tried to push up the back from being flogged and ripped open from the beatings, every time you try to push up the brutal nature of the tree, the, the stipes would have ripped into the back causing more pain. Uh, the question becomes, what does the victim die of first? Uh, could be suffocation, could be, with enough blood loss, a condition called hypovolemia, where you, you lose enough blood. Some people go into hypovolemic shock. Um, if you don't pass out, the heart, you, you get into a state of tachycardia and abnormal rhythms where the heart is trying to make up for that loss, and it beats very quickly, which can be very painful. Over time, the victim experiences what's called pericardial effusion or cardiac tamponade, depending on how bad it is. And what happens is the tissue, this sac-like tissue that surrounds the heart, becomes filled with fluid. Now, something in interested, and as a new Christian, not knowing as much as I studying about the human body, um, I'm going to read to you John 19.34, and this is really important because people will try to find ridiculous things to say that the Bible is not accurate. Now we know that it is. So in John 19.34, it says, so they want the, they, what they don't want the person is hanging, especially through the festivals, a very long period of time. Um, if the person hasn't died, the Romans will hasten the death process. Verse 34, it says, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And people say, well, that's not possible. Oh, yes, it is. Because if you study the fluid that develops in the pericardial tissue, it's called serous fluid, which is a very light-colored fluid. In addition to that, the victim can uh, suffer from what's called pleural effusion, where the water, the fluid, uh, develops around the lungs. So by the piercing, so the spear goes in to the, the rib cage to pierce the heart. As it goes in, it can pierce the lungs, causing that fluid to come out. It'll definitely pierce the pericardial tissue before it goes actually into the cardiac muscle. And what you would see on that spear, you could actually watch it if you were there. You would see red and you would see light color fluid. So the gospel writer said, blood and water flowed out. Perfect, 
perfect when it comes to what we understand of the human body. Just so you know, I hope you're paying attention because there is going to be a quiz at the end of this. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, so there's a lot more to it. I, I had more notes, but suffice to say that our English word, did you know this? The word, when you say, hey, how was that surgery? Oh, it's the pain started to wear off, the pain pills. It is excruciating. Anybody ever use that word? You know what it literally means? From the cross. Out of the cross. So the word was, <laughs> was brought into our uh, uh, etymology, in, into the understanding of words, and we use that word today. A lot of people don't know where it comes from, but that's what it comes from. So I'll just say this again. Um, he could have come down off the cross at any time. He suffered all of what he suffered because he loves us that much. So if you're wondering, you're curious, what about me? It's been 2,000 years. How does he feel about me? He died for everybody's sins. Um, he had to shed his blood, according to Leviticus 17. God says, way back in the Old Testament, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. But there's more. The shedding of blood, like I couldn't do it for my family because I'm, I'm a sinner. Right? I'm not perfect. It had to be from perfection. When, the, when this took place in the temple with the, with the animals, they would uh, scour them. They would move the fur. If there was any blemish or imperfection, they would not use that animal in those temple sacrifices. So uh, Jesus, when John saw Jesus and behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not even sure if John completely understood what he was saying when he said that, but he was saying a biblical truth. The perfect sacrifice has come to die for our sins. So, he loves you this much? Absolutely. Verse 39, continuing, uh, it says, Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly for we, we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I love this. Three, uh, excuse me, yeah, three out of four is assurance is not presumptuous. So in other words, listen, you can go... I guess after 2,000 years, uh, when people pull stray away from the Bible, which they shouldn't because it is the foundation, you have religions and um, organizations that come up with their own rules and regulations. God wanted us to have assurance of our salvation. It doesn't mean we're wonderful. The assurance that I have is not because I did anything. It's because Christ did it. I take no credit for my salvation. Absolutely none of it. So assurance is not presumptuous. Presumptuous meaning you're presuming to know something that you really shouldn't know or you can't know. And that's not true. I'm going to read a scripture that speaks about this. So the unbelieving thief, and uh, when, when you read the word in the Greek, uh, you know, they, they engaged in robbery, uh, assault. I mean, these, you had to be pretty bad to be crucified, right? With Jesus, he just, we talked about before, they just didn't know what to do with him. And uh, we went through the whole machinations of the six trials and how he was declared innocent, but then ends up being crucified. You can go through that um, a few weeks back. But the unbelieving thief, right, uh, was guilty of a crime, according to the believing thief. <laughs> so you would have three or four or, you know, depends on where the Romans were putting up the, uh, you know, the, the crosses, and you could have three people in close proximity, which was very, it was very odd. You know, you're suffering together. You could hear what each other are saying. Uh, you, you can, you know, your voice carries, etc. So you could hear the people below, and then they can hear each other. So the believing thief is saying, hey, um, we deserve this, right? We did things to get here, but he's done nothing wrong. And this is a picture of the world who, with the unbelieving thief, who say, I never killed anybody. God saved me. Now, 
you know, how many people got saved at that time? Peers, maybe one or more of the soldiers did. At least one of the guys crucified did that. You know, God's, God's, um, his, what he offers is for everyone, right? Anyone who will believe, anyone who will change, repent, and trust in him. But you have a situation here where he did wrong the unbelieving thief and he almost demands Jesus saves himself because he cares about Jesus? No, because he wants to be saved too. He wants to get off this cross as well. Uh, but, you know, people today do that. Well, a loving God wouldn't dot, dot, dot. A loving God wouldn't judge me. A loving God, um, because I didn't kill anybody, would save me. And what people want God to do is go against his sense of justice. So what God did was he did provide the way to be saved, and that's through Christ. Right? We even read about in the Old Testament how the uh, how Abraham was saved by faith. He knew what God was going to do in the future. Right? So he even received of that before Christ even came to sacrifice for his sins. So his efficacy is past, present, and future. Uh, verse 41 and 42, you, you look at the truths that the belief of the thief who started out disbelieving and mocking and ends up becoming a, a you know, becoming saved. So a few things. A, he says, we deserve the punishment for our sins. You know, in Romans 5, it says, when sin entered the world, death entered the world, and death through sin. And I try to explain that to people. Sometimes people look at, well, why would God, a loving God, dot, dot, dot. And I always say, you got to go back to the beginning, right? It, it wasn't God who did this. Do you think God wants to see the wars? Do you think he wants to see the suffering? It's the sin that humanity brought into the human race. God gave humanity the planet, right? He gave humanity free will. He gave humanity the ability to be saved and incredible resources. You realize that the world could be fed a hundred times over with the resources we have. Why isn't it? Because sinners run a lot of these countries, right? So he gave us all those things and he gave us the ability to be saved when he didn't have to do that. Why send your son, God the Son, perfection, to suffer for something he didn't do, to be tortured, and to receive the sins of the world, which he never had that uh, familiarity. He knew what sin was, but God never sinned. So now he's got to pay the price for, quite frankly, quadrillions of people. I'm just kind of putting this stuff out there, right? So he said, we deserve it. Two, don't you fear God especially now? You know, don't go to your deathbed in stubbornness. Think about this. You know, this is my choice. I'm going to receive Christ, right? What are you going to do? You're still pushing the issue, and you might have about a half an hour or an hour left on this planet. Really, really consider this. So verse 42 is, is pretty impressive where that the one guy says, Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's basically saying, all three of us, we're going down quickly. By the end of the day, none of us are going to be alive. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So what did he do? He repented. Now, to some, repent is a scary word, but it just means to turn or to change, right? So think about the, the thief. He started out mocking Jesus, you know, mob mentality, everybody else is doing it. Come on, come on. And then he has a change of heart. And he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdoms. So that's repentance. It's, it's a turn. Something we can do. Return and believe, the Bible says, and you will be saved. I want to leave you with this one scripture, which is phenomenal. Well, they're all phenomenal. But <laughs> this one I like because it's the assurance of what we believe. In 1 John five eleven. he said, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. But they can always change, folks, just like that guy who's crucified next to him. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, right? those of you that believe, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Isn't that great? How many uh, systems, religious systems, say, well, you're just not going to know until the end, but give us more money, do these things for us. It's like a board game. And then when you close your eyes the last time, hopefully you did everything right. What God says is, no, 
you can know. So I just was praying about a family, uh, a daughter, praying for her father. She's a believer. He got saved, literally, in the last moments of his life. Three days later, he passed away. I can tell you as a pastor, I've seen some of it. I haven't seen all of it. God is merciful. I believe everyone gets a chance at salvation. I've ministered to people in the hospital or deathbeds or whatever, and one particular person, his son called me and said, "Uh, he's gone. I'm like, I just was there yesterday, right? And again, it's not me. This isn't me. I'm just, I read some scripture to him, tell him what Jesus did for him. God is good. In countries where you don't have maybe so many ministers, God is working through dreams and visions. Iran, right? China, they probably have an underground church in the millions. It's incredible. You can't stop the Holy Spirit. Even these countries, they put up radio jamming devices and it still gets in. Right? You heard from our missionary um, to Latvia, Eastern Europe, in January, last Sunday of the month, we have one of our missionaries. We have missionaries everywhere. He's coming from the Middle East. Boy, let me, he's going to tell you some stories how Jesus is working in the Middle East. It's incredible. But the news will just show you the bloodshed and the bombings and the wars. That's all, it's sensationalism. But what God is doing, mainstream media doesn't care to pick it up. It's, it's not their thing. But it's happening. Missionaries will tell you. So I told them, tell them all the stories you want to tell them. And I mean accounts, real life accounts. So uh, incredible stuff. Based on the thief's assurance, right? What is not needed for salvation? Now let's go through some of these. And again, these are, a lot of these are good things, but they don't save us. So A, baptism doesn't save us. You're putting the cart before the horse. I'm going to get baptized and that's going to save me. No, no, no. Repent, believe, trust, you're saved. Baptism is, you look in the book of Acts, you look in the Bible, people got baptized as an outward display of their newfound faith. There's so much symbolism to it. It's very powerful. We're doing one December 10th. It doesn't save you. You get saved and then you desire to be baptized. Again, the the church in China and Iran and a lot of these places, they have to get baptized in secret. Because, you know, the authorities will come and take them away, but they want to be baptized. That says something. I'm not a fan of really cold water. I'm really impressed by some of these Christians in these countries that go to some lake or stream and it's, it's like, I don't know, 10 below. God bless them. Oh my goodness. I mean, we're spoiled. We have a heated, you know, water heater. So if you were wondering, yes, we do. It's not going to be cold. So baptism doesn't save us, but we do it because it's a good thing to do. Speaking in tongues doesn't save us, right? So the thief on the cross, you'll be, you know, Lord, remember when you come into your kingdom, Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise. He couldn't get off the cross and be baptized, but he was still saved, Jesus said. He didn't, it didn't show evidence that he spoke in tongues, although some people do speak in tongues. It's spiritual gift, the apostle Paul tells us but it doesn't save us. Again, what happens in religion a lot of times is they put the cart before the horse. Um, Good works don't save us. But good works are good, aren't they? You know, before I was a Christian, I did some good works, but not a lot. You know, I was a worldly person. If I did something for you, in back of my mind, I thought you could do something for me in the future. That's not the right heart motive. I become a Christian and I want to do good works, right? I'm excited. I love to help people and I love to go down and see the food for the soul and people are getting fed. Man, that's so exciting. It makes me so happy. Um, Good works don't save us, but it's the evidence that we are saved because our life changes on the outside because it changed on the inside. Uh, Belonging to a church denomination as a mediator doesn't save us. 1 Timothy 2 says that Christ is the only mediator. It was just Jesus and the thief. For all intents and purposes, let's just say this, that the thief um, was a career criminal and he gets uh, crucified and at the last moment, genuinely, because some people say it just for a photo op or to get in the news or for their parole you know, hearing, it's, it's just reality. I did prison ministry too. Um, and then others are genuine. See, God knows the difference, right? He's, he, he sees the heart. So, um, you know, 1 Timothy 2, Christ is the only mediator. 
Here's another one. Sacraments, rites, traditions, reputation, or a following doesn't save us. Only Jesus saves. And where did he go? He didn't go to purgatory. He went to paradise. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. And, you know, Luke, I believe it's Luke, is, was he the only one who shared this particular uh, event? Not, I have to go study my notes, but um, it, Luke really brings out some things that are just unique and powerful, as John does when he's sharing about the deity of Christ. So really, really good stuff. So the thief repented, turned to Jesus, put his trust in him, and maybe somebody listening today will do the same thing. If you're wondering why you walked into this church and we're talking about soteriology, which is a big word for the study of salvation, it's a whole study, right? So I'll give you the theological stuff, I'll give you the historical, the science, but at the end of the day, it's very simple. You don't have to know anything about the Bible. I'm telling you about Jesus. I'm telling you what he did for you. And some people say in their heart, give me an opportunity because I think I'm ripe. It's God doing the work. Didn't know you were going to show up today. Didn't know you were watching on the live stream. I don't control these things. I have no control. It's God who does the work. Right? So continuing on, verse 44, uh, last few verses. Now it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. It wasn't a spectacle anymore. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So, uh, four out of four is Christ is crucified. Now, what I'd like to do is go into the sayings of Christ on the cross. As you could imagine, you, it's hard to breathe, right? Uh, it's, you, you're you're becoming dry in your mouth. There's pain everywhere. It just must have been such a miserable experience. So it wasn't like they were having long conversations because it was probably very difficult to even communicate. However, there were a few things that Jesus said that I'm going to address. The first three are about his love for humanity. And the last three are the nuts and bolts of soteriology or what it means, the study of salvation. So the first one, or A, he said, Father, forgive them. Jesus was always forgiving. One of the greatest things that Jesus taught us is how to forgive people. Now, sometimes people come to me quietly and say about how much they've been hurt, and the deeper the wound, sometimes forgiveness becomes a little bit of a process. And that's human nature. However, Jesus was able to do it instantly, right? They had a hand in getting him up on that cross. Then they mocked him, made a joke about it. Right? Ever, you ever been falsely accused of somebody and then someone's just trashing you on Facebook and you're like, but I didn't do these things. This was the ultimate. He got him crucified. But he knew he had to die for our sins, so there's another paradox there. Uh, so forgive them. Right? B, in John 19, Jesus sees as he's on the cross... It appears that aside from the women followers and Mary, uh, it appeared that John was only was one of the twelve, and then Judas flaked. So John was one of the eleven left who uh, had the courage to actually be there during the crucifixion. So he looks at John, and he looks at Mary and says, "He can't." He says, "Behold your mother." He looks at Mary and looks at John and says, "Behold your son." What did that mean? It meant that he wasn't going to be there for his aging mother, so he wanted Mary to, be, to go into the house of John. John, this is your mom now. Take care of her. It's just, it, that was the culture back then, right? In America, it's, we're so disconnected from some of these, these practices. Uh, C says to the, the one thief, or it probably was more of a robber, uh, today you will be with me in paradise. 
right? Trying to work to get as many into eternity right up to the end. Now, there's one thing he said that I have to say it because it's, it's in here, but it doesn't fall into one of my categories. He said, I thirst. Yeah. So he probably just expressed verbally what he, what he was feeling in, in his body. So the last three have to do with salvation. D, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, some people are tempted to be stumbled by that statement. He had to say it. In Psalm 22.1, it was a Psalm of David. David wrote it and had no idea of the spiritual implications later on when Christ died for our sins. So basically what he's saying, you're getting an insight into, I guess what we could say is a temporary rift. So for all eternity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have always been together, always been in harmony. There's never, never a separation. For God so loved the world, John 3.16, that He sent His Son into the world, right? That whosoever would believe on Him would not perish but have everlasting life. So there was a point in eternity, which is really wild, where Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God the Son, takes on the form of human flesh because He had to. Why? Because in the line of Adam, which we're in the line of, He brought sin into the world. So Christ had to go back into the line of Adam to undo what Adam did. So being fully God and fully man, he was able to make that sacrifice for humanity, men and women, children, grandchildren, all that, all that kind of stuff. So my God, my God, why have you forsaken me probably represents that sliver of time where the sin of the world, and you can't see this. None of the onlookers could see it. The thieves couldn't see it. He bore the sins of the world. So for that slight moment of time, Father had to look away because he can't be... It's, it's really wild stuff. It's very complex. Uh, and that was, some people say, oh, the crucifixion. And yeah, was, was Jesus in pain? No doubt. Did he really feel the pain? Absolutely, he felt pain. He thirsted. But you know what I think was worse? For God to bear the sin of the world. God set humans, they, he sends them as, out as free moral agents, wants them to stay close to him. Sin is just separation. Human race decides, we're just going to do it our way. We don't need you anymore. Look at our culture. Further and further away. And what's also happening? More chaos in our culture. More hopelessness. More fear. More God is pushed out. So God had to, he had to do this. He had to save us. And this was the way he did it. E, in John 19.30, there's two more. He says, it is finished. And he gave up his spirit, right? The word finished is an accounting word. It's the Greek root word is teleo, which means the debt is paid. The debt of what? The debt of what we owe for sins in the human race. Hey, listen, tax season's coming up, isn't it? Yay, tax seasons. You know, I owe the government money kind of thing. I'm not saying me. I'm just saying, you know, somebody might say that. But... <laughs> You know, you, gotta, you go to your accountant. What's the best thing that you can hear from your accountant? It's all paid. Oh, wait a minute. I don't know. Property tax. No, that's done. State tax. No, no. Federal income. No, that's done. Uh, do I owe you money? No, we put that into the bill too. The debt is paid. That's it. You're free and clear, Mr. Jones. Right? So here, Jesus is saying, Teleo. I paid it. Now I can go. I don't have to be up here anymore. I did what I came to do. Powerful stuff. And then F, verse 46. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What did Jesus say in John 10? I give up my life. I lay it down. Nobody takes it from me. And I take it up again. And it does appear that uh, from everything I read in Scripture that even the soldiers were... Well, could, could he be dead already? You know, then they, they do the thing with the spear where the other ones maybe continue to linger. Jesus is like, I did it. I died for the sin of the world. Now I'm separating God the Father. Uh, I'm sorry, back up. F full deity from humanity to do what in the resurrection? To take up humanity again. Pretty wild, isn't it? So... This is why. This is the only way, right? 
Verse 44 in Matthew 27 tells us that there were three hours of darkness and an earthquake and other accompanying signs. And the Roman historian Phlegon, you can look it up, cites a period of darkness and an earthquake on this particular day. Some thought it might have been an eclipse, but based on the Passover season with the full moon, it couldn't have been an eclipse. And the people were scared. A lot of them went home after that. Like, what did we just see? One of the soldiers turns to Christ in, in one of the other Gospels. He turns to Christ in faith. And I can imagine the soldiers, they were hardened dudes, man. They went out to the outskirts of the Roman Empire and they were conquerors. But this was their detachment. This was their detail for the day, the crucifixion. They had to be there to maintain security. So what did the soldiers see and what did the soldiers hear? Hardened, tough, centurion, his group. You read the Scriptures. This was the Son of God in one of the other Gospels. The soldiers are in fear. What could make them frightened? There's just a bunch of civilians in crucifixion of so-called criminals because they saw things they couldn't control. And maybe some of them said, "Uh uh-oh, what did we just do? What did we just do? I love the details. So we go back to, and again, I do a lot of this with, you know, and I deal with this a lot with this generation. Prove it to me. Okay, let's look at history. Josephus, Roman historian Tacitus, different from Phlegon, Babylonian Talmud, all speak about Jesus' existence and his crucifixion and the cataclysms of that day. They all speak about it. Can't explain it. We can explain it, right? Uh, So... You know, some, some teachings, and I don't know where they get this from, say that, I remember, I don't want to say the group, but, but they, come to, they come to my house and they're trying to explain stuff. And I'm like, like, no, 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 there's no such thing as a cross. Jesus was crucified on a torture stake. I'm like, where do you guys get that from? Well, that's what our leader told us. I said, okay, let's open up the book of Roman history. The stipes, the patabolum, this is why they did it. And they'll, I said, have you ever seen this before? No, we haven't. I said, I think you need to research it. So there's a lot of weird teachings about Jesus that are either Gnostic, they're esoteric. Quite frankly, some of them are cultic. Um, Some people believe he wasn't crucified at all. We're going to get to this when we talk about the resurrection. Last point before we close is verse 45, and also Matthew 27, said that the veil in the temple, which wasn't far from where Jesus was crucified, it wasn't because of the earthquake, that the veil... And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that, oh my goodness, it was either 45 or, I remember some of the dimensions of the temple, or greater feet tall where this curtain was just all this heavy, heavy fabric that one person couldn't lift. And it separated the uh, general area, the holy place, from the holy of holies where the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled on the mercy seat uh, on the Day of Atonement. So, In that place, only God could be and the high priest and only certain times of the year, or I think one time of the year. So what happened was, as the crucifixion was happening, in addition to the cataclysms, the veil of the temple, which was this very thick fabric, from the top to the bottom ripped and separated. So now the Holy of Holies, where only God could be and the temporary mediator, was open to the rest of people. What does that tell us? It was symbolic. When Christ was crucified, God was saying, it's open now, right? It's open. You can come to me at any time because Christ did the work for you. There's a lot of really wild stuff in this. It's just so incredible. I'll leave you with this. The greatest paradox. Yep, the greatest paradox. Death produces life. Injustice produces pardons. Bearing of horrible sins produces grace. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the worst of times to watch Jesus go through this, the suffering that he did, but it was the best of time because it gave the ability to save humanity. It was the age of knowledge. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the age of wisdom. When you understand soteriology and theology and the things that that save us, it's beautiful, it's complex, there's wisdom, there's depth to it, right? But it's also the age of foolishness because the Apostle Paul even writes in Corinthians 
how to some, the Greek mind at the time, the Greco-Roman mind, they couldn't wrap their mind about, around it. To them, it was foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. Do you believe? Or do you not believe? And if you don't believe, why don't you believe? And if you don't believe, listen, I'm not, can I just say this? Let me just disclaimer here. I don't want your money. I don't want your, you know, to see that you're here. I don't want you to volunteer for me. You know what I want? I want you to know the Lord. You could be here and then move out of state. And you know what? The Lord is with you. Just receive him. I don't get anything out of it. I shouldn't. And whenever I give an altar call for people to come up, I don't even know who's coming up. I'm just his vessel. I'm just, I'm not even the mediator. Christ is the mediator. So it, it isn't about you join Calvary Chapel or join our system. Who cares about that stuff? Throw it out the window, right? You know, we've had a lot of people leave New Jersey for lower taxes. So, you know, our brothers and sisters are all over the country and the world at this point, you know, from this church. But uh, anyway, let's go back to the, the main point here is that the paradox is, and all these things happened for you because he loves you. So to that person who's struggling with their faith, and I get it. You turn on the news, what's real anymore? Pilate said, what's truth? Turn on TV, what is truth? Are these people even telling me the truth? Who's telling me the truth? What's right? What's wrong? The Lord has those answers for you. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. And Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org, where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.